You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Good morning. I hope you uh, are grateful for the extra sleep. I know I am. I hope it's helpful as we work in God's Word this morning that we are attentive and that we are alert. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, if you'd like to start making your way to Romans chapter 7, we're continuing in our series. This morning we're going to be in verses 1 through 6. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's under a seat somewhere near you. That'll be on page 1002. Let's go ahead and read God's Word together. I hear some pages still ruffling, rustling. Uh, that's the nice thing about the app is nobody knows how slow you are to get there or not get there. <clears throat> so if you have your Bible on your lap or you've opened up that app, let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says this. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband still lives, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not the old letter of the law. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture, this argument that you inspired Paul to write that applies to us even right now, I ask that you would open our eyes to see it and understand it. Give us clarity of thought. Lord, may we be moved by your word and transformed by the power in it. God, please help me to speak this clearly. And Lord, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it would do a radical and transforming work in our life, not just right now, but even throughout the week and into the month and into the years, Lord, and this would be something we would look back to and say, the Lord is working. So we thank you for your word, and now we seek to be changed by it. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so in the earlier sections of Scripture, as we've been going through this, as we heard Pastor Josiah last week, as, as we've seen in 5 and 6, Paul is making the case, and we love the case, that we were once slaves to sin and death, but now we are not. We've been set free from the law of death, and now we are slaves to righteousness in Jesus Christ. How did this happen? I mean, what, what's the mechanics that made this possible? Did death, to whom we were slaves, send us to a slave market and sell us off to make a profit? No, it's not that at all. Did, uh, did Jesus come and kick down the door and jump in and kill death and cut off our chains with a battle axe? Now, most of us would say, yeah, that's what he did, but, <clears throat> but no. That's really not what happened. That's not 
what he did because the law had legal right over us. He couldn't do that. He'd be violating the law. The law had us dead to right. We were slaves. So how is it possible that we are no longer under the covenant of works? What set us free? How did this happen? And there's a more significant question we should be asking. Why were you and me, why were we set free from the covenant of works? For what reason would we be set free? This is what we're going to look at this morning. Paul answers these questions in specifically verse 4. Specifically verse 4, he's going to answer the question. But before we get there, he gives us a very memorable illustration. Let's go ahead and take a look at that. He starts here in verse 1. He says, since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know the law rules over someone as long as he lives? That's the first part of his illustration. He's saying, look, you guys know the law. And it's weird, he sort of intermixes the law, like the Old Testament law, with just the very reality of how we work in the world. Okay, Because for them, the law had a lot more impact than it does for us. The law for us is a spiritual reality, and in our world, nobody goes, hey, I'm going to go talk to a lawyer about that. We're talking about you know, tangible law. He's intertangling these things in his illustration. So he says, look, you guys all know how the law works, right? He says, when you're dead, the law has no hold on you. Now, would anybody in here disagree with that if we're talking about the mechanics of, say, a speeding ticket or criminal law? We don't take dead people to trial. If someone dies in the act of committing a crime, we're like, well, I guess justice is served. That's it. Right? That's how we function. Because our country's laws have no hold on you when you're dead. Some think that's probably not true, but it's true. When you're dead, you're free from the nation's laws. And just for these guys and, and for this big spiritual picture, when we're dead, we're free from the law. The law has its grips on you all the way until you die, right? But once you're in the grave, it doesn't hold you any longer. Isn't that comforting? And we can all nod and say, that makes sense. Yeah, we don't try dead people. Yep, we don't have to worry about taxes when we're dead. We don't have to worry about you know, speeding tickets and, and other issues when we're dead. The law has no hold. We're nodding, we're agreeing. And then he's going to move into this really fascinating illustration, right? He's going to show us how this works by using something most of us can relate to, something that's simple, marriage. Which also proves to me that at the time he was definitely not married because his wife would be elbowing him and saying, why in the world? What are you doing? But single guy can easily go to this illustration. And he says, look, we all know. In fact, let's just read it again. Verses 2 and 3. For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then if she married another man while her husband was living, she would be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then she is married to a, uh, Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. His point is marriage has an end date. We make a covenant with one another. We make vows, and how does it end? Famously, tell death, do you part? Right? If we were married forever, if someone were to die, there would be no remarriage whatsoever. But the marriage covenant, the vows we make, 
are terminated when one party of the covenant in the marriage dies. And then the people are free to remarry, which is, we all get this, right? This hasn't changed from one culture to the next. We get this. This is his illustration. To be free from this, one person needs to die and the other one is free. He's saying this is similar. His point is that our covenant, our vows, our relationship in marriage is terminated at death, and the same is true with our relationship to the law. It terminates when one party or the other dies. So you belong to the law until it is completed or finished, which would be either you dying or the law dying. That's his point. That's, that's what he's getting at. That's his argument here. All right, and so we go back to Romans 5 and Romans 6, we've been listening to, and he's been saying that we're freed from the law. The law no longer has its hold on you. So therefore, the law must have died because you're not in the grave. If it only terminates with death, like what's going on here? The law must have died, and there are people who live like that's the reality for them. If the law has died then, Let's just run with this for a minute. If the law has died, there is no longer judgment over you. Woohoo! Right? That's, a, that's good news, except there's more. If the law has died, it holds no power over you. Okay, I'm still tracking with this. I like what I hear. You are free. Yep. Woohoo! Fantastic. But if the law has died, it has no power over anyone. If the laws died, no one is held to judgment whatsoever. Everyone is free. If the law is died, we're free to choose whomever we will have, or we are free to be a God unto ourselves. If the law is died, there's no longer a moral standard from above whatsoever. Societies are free to choose right and wrong. And individuals are free to reject those society's rules just like they rejected God's rules if the law had died. And although Hebrews 8.13 tells us the first covenant is growing old, it says, and is about to pass away, that can't possibly yet be the case, although it is happening, because in Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. The law is not dead. It's not dead. In fact, it's very much alive. It is very active, and it is condemning people even right now, maybe some of you. The law is not dead. John 3, 18. In fact, if you want to head there and then keep your finger in there, we're going to be back and forth in this text. It says, anyone who believes in Jesus is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. He's talking about the condemnation that comes from the law. And they're already condemned. The law is still functioning. It's alive. And you might remember Romans 2. 12 through 16, we went through that. You remember that? The sinners will stand before God and be judged 
by the law. The law is functioning right now. It is alive and it is active. So if the law hasn't died, how is it that Paul can say we're freed from the law? How does this work? It's because it's us who've died. We've died. Look at Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who is raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. Paul has just made the point that turning to another in a marriage when the other party is still alive is adultery. But now he's saying you're not committing adultery because it's you who died to the law and you did this through Christ. He stood in as your substitute in that death. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about Jesus taking on your sin, but he's even taking on your relationship to the law. And now you're dead by what Christ did on the cross. Jesus was killed on the cross in your place so that he could sever your relationship from the law, which would allow you to belong to another. And not just any another, that's what the text says, but we know. Paul's referring to Jesus. It's not just anyone you choose, it's Jesus. You belong to Jesus. So if you died with Christ in this way, you also live with Christ, and you belong to Christ. So you're not free to yourself, you still belong to another. This looks an awful lot like you were a slave over here, belonging to one, and now you're a slave to righteousness, belonging to one. It's just been a, it's been a change. You remember that. That was Romans 6, 8, and 9. It says, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him, and therefore death no longer rules over us. And then we ask, how did I die with Christ? We don't think about that a whole heap ton, do we? And maybe that's my fault. We talk about our sins being put on Christ, which is true. But we very rarely think about our life being put on Christ. How did we die with Christ? I told you to keep your finger in John 3. We're going to look at a famous passage of Scripture in context. We're going to see if we can get a good handle on this question. How do I die with Christ so I can be freed from the law, belong to another, and live in Christ? Let's go ahead and take a look at that. If you're there, it's on page 943 if you're using one of those pew Bibles. I'm going to start with John chapter 3, verse 14. Okay, it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, <laughs> I'd like to keep reading here, but there's clearly a connection to this account of Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness. I know some of you probably read that this morning in your devotional time, and you're totally blown away that I'm talking about it right now. But for some of us, we haven't read that account for a while. So I think if this is the just as connection, the illustration that's going to help us understand 
what he's talking about, we should probably get that story fresh in our mind. So before I keep going, let's go to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. That's the account of Moses lifting up this snake in the wilderness. It's on page 134 in the Pew Bible. Let's go ahead and go to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9 is this account. Moses has led the people uh, by God's power out of bondage, out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and they have been the most faithful, most amazing, most wonderful people, making a straight beeline to the promised land, as God had said, if you, if you just trust me, we'll get there, right? No. At every turn, they grumble. We should go back to Egypt. I liked it being a slave there. <laughs> Moses, you don't know what you're doing. There's this giant pillar of fire leading us. I don't know if we should follow that. That was the people. So there's no difference between them and us today, right? They just aren't trusting. And so in this situation, once again, they're not trusting. And now we have Numbers 21, verse 4. It starts like this. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. Okay, so God's leading them around this people that would get in a big fight with them. But... The people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Here's their complaint. Often we hear it directed at Moses, but it starts with God, right? God and Moses. Hear this complaint they're making against God. Why have you, God, led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food, which God was providing. Like, I mean, come on. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses, which maybe they should have started with God, but they came to Moses, he's their leader, and they said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. So they're acknowledging, man, we've we done messed up, and now there are snakes everywhere biting us. This is terrible. They say, Intercede with the Lord, so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, and by the way, did he take the snakes away? No. Snakes are still there. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake and he recovered. So the means of judgment, the snakes, also became the symbol of the means of their salvation. I got bit by a snake. I looked to the snake. I'm not going to die. But God didn't remove the snakes. There's a constant reminder here. Because of my grumbling and my rebellion, we have a snake problem. And my only answer is to remember that I sinned against God, so now I'll look back towards his solution that he's made, and I'll look at this bronze snake and I'll live. That's the story that John felt necessary to create a connection to in explaining here something very powerful about salvation from Jesus. So let's go back. I hope you kept your finger here. Let's go back to John 3. Page 943. And let's look at this again. John chapter 3, 
Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, and now we have that fresh in our mind, like that, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That'll make you think twice about saying, oh, we want to lift up Jesus this morning. He's on a cross. So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So out of God's love, he gave his Son. What did he give his Son to? The cross. He gave his Son to be a sacrifice. And it says anyone who believes in him will not perish but instead have eternal life, which tells us the default position is everyone is perishing. The only ones who will not perish are the ones who look to the sun, lift it up, and he's on an instrument of death and judgment, right? The means of this judgment is also the means of this salvation when we look to Christ. That's what we saw with Moses and the snakes, right? And now we see it here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him, so here, this is important. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. You see what's happening here. You see how believing in Christ and knowing who Christ is and surrendering yourself to him is the means by which you die with him on the cross and live with him in the resurrection. This is how he said this works. Anyone who would believe in him, he's going to give eternal life. And anyone who does not remains in judgment. How do we die with Christ? We believe that he is who he says he is. He did what he said he did. He went to the cross. He died in your place. He was laid in the tomb. He was raised again, just like we will one day be raised, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. You see how that's, how that's working? That's the mechanism by which you have been or can be, depending on if you believe or not, how you can be freed from the law because you died with Christ. You die with Christ when you place your belief in Christ. That's what's happening. And if there are any of you in here that are not yet sure you've died with Christ, I have to be honest with you. I have to tell you what the Bible says. You're under the law. And even a single sin means you are condemned to death and a life apart from God which the Bible tells us is a very terrible judgment for eternity. But that's where you're at. That's your default position. But salvation comes through believing in Christ. I would love to talk with you more about this. I would love to compel you now. Believe that he is who he says he is. Turn to him. Repent. Say, hey, you know what? You got me out of Egypt and I grumbled and I fought against you, but I was wrong and now I'm looking to... We don't look to the snake now. We look to Christ on the cross and say, that was supposed to be me. And I'm dying with him. And I'm raised with him. And now I belong to him. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be saved. Death changes everything. It changes everything. And Jesus died in your place 
to change everything. Praise the Lord. Now, it'd be really easy to stop there. I mean, most of the time in evangelical Christianity, that's where we lock up the brakes. I got enough. That's exciting. I'm freed from the law. I belong to Jesus. And we're done. But when we do that, and we do that here sometimes, like let's be honest, like we get really excited about that and that's enough. When we do that, we miss the entire point of Romans 7, 4 through 6. We actually miss what Paul's trying to tell us because we're so excited about the first part, about the marriage thing and the law thing and being set free from the law, and then that's it. Okay, so in order for us to see what's going on here, I want to I share with you a Bible study tool. It's one that I really like. I find it incredibly helpful, and I hope you will too. Now, there's a technical term for it, and you don't, need to, you don't need to remember this term. But for those who like these sorts of things, I'm going to tell you the technical term for this Bible study tool is called the discourse analysis tool. Okay, discourse being like the flow of conversation or we're making the point and we're analyzing the flow of the conversation. You could just call it like the grammar tool if you want to simplify this, okay? In any language in the world, and especially in the English language and certainly in the original biblical languages, but in any language in the world, there are only 18 things you can say. Did you know that? 18 things. There's only 18 things you can do with language to say something. And how these things work is by the ways we fit words together to communicate. And it's actually, so we do big word studies, right? Oh, I want to study the word propitiation. But it's actually the little connecting tissues that show us the discourse. These are words like and, but, therefore, if, so that, because. Those things communicate things. Very important things. Let me give you an example of how important these things are. My wife saw an advertisement for a ladies' event with a Bible study in our neighborhood. Now, this wasn't at this church, luckily, because I'd be embarrassed. But she saw an advertisement that said, ladies' event, come, we're having a Bible study in the Old Testament, but there'll be great food. Words are important. But? There'll be, what, or what's the difference between if that said and... Versus if I said, and, hey, we're going to have a Bible study, that's going to tie to the word great. And we're going to have food that ties to the word great. And implies both things, or all things in a list. The word but suggests contrast. We're going to have a Bible study, but, okay, but there's going to be great food, so we're contrasting great with our Bible study. The words mean stuff. So the discourse analysis tool helps us to understand what the author, in this case God, speaking through Paul, is communicating to us. And so it's the grammar tool that we take the grammar and we put it all together. Okay, So one of those 18 things that we can communicate is called the cause and effect tool. It's got a much more technical word and I forgot what it is. But it's cause and effect in such a way that one action automatically involves another action. Now, there's another way we could do this. We had the cause, and it just so happened to create an effect. But in this case, 
It's they go together. They have to go together. The cause and effect, there's an automatic connection here that one is significantly imperative and important to the other, okay? The cause and effect tool. And when we see this in the Bible, we usually see it in the words as, and it's showing us the purpose, we're seeing it as so that, or in order that. Now, it can also show up as for, or uh, a couple other things, but usually when that's the case, those have multiple uses, which is tricky in English. So we have to use context to figure out is for showing us the purpose. But when you see so that, or when you see in order that, almost 100% of the time, it's the cause and effect tool. And you just look at what's being said and go, oh, here's the purpose. Here's the reason. Okay, let me give you an example. If I said, I went to Chick-fil-A so that I could see my son working in the drive-thru. Okay, that sentence has purpose. Think about it for a minute. What was the purpose of my sentence? What did I really need you to know? What's the most important part, that I went to Chick-fil-A or that I went to see my son working in the drive-thru? The so that is showing us that it's not chick What if I just said, uh, I went to Chick-fil-A? Did the purpose of my statement get communicated? No. What if I just said, to see my son in the drive-thru? What are you talking about? You see how these things depend on one another and using this grammar tool, the word so that is vitally important to show us purpose. Okay? I've just given you this tool. I think, and this connector, I think it'd be valuable now for us to test it out together. Very helpful tool. Let's go ahead and look at Romans 7, 4 through 6. Make sure we understand what Paul is trying to communicate. Are you ready? And by the way, before we do, this is usually why I say so that in such a weird way when I read, because we've gotten so comfortable with this in our language that I could just say the word to, or I could drop it, and because you're comfortable with what I'm getting at, you just very naturally, in sort of a lazy kind of way, know what I'm talking about. I went to Chick-fil-A to see my son on the drink. But then when you read it in the Bible, you're not well-practiced. So I like to really make a big emphasis so that we really catch it. So I'm going to do that here. Let's read this together. Romans Chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, that's one of those other words in discourse, but therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For, that's another important connecting word, for... When you were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. How about that? Do you see the purpose? The point is not that we've been freed from the law, although that's great. That's not the point. The point is that we belong to another for a reason. The reason is that we bear fruit for God, verse 4. And then he said it another way, verse 6, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit 
and not in the old letter of the law. When we were under the law in the flesh, this is verse 5, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But the point is, death changes everything, and now we belong to another for a reason. That's the point. That's what this discourse is arguing. Isn't that so much better than just simply we've been freed from the law? We've been freed for a purpose. We've been freed to live in the newness of the Holy Spirit. We've been freed to bear fruit for God where we once used to bear fruit for death. Praise the Lord, there's a purpose behind all this. And it's wonderful. It's fantastic. And death changes everything so that we can do this and be a part of it. We died with Christ so that we could live with him. And this is what it looks like. I think we get really excited about dying to the law. I mean, we do, for good reason. We get very excited about it. And then we miss the bigger point. We just miss the bigger point. Okay, we were living in sin and death, but there's more. There's more. There's so much more because we now live in the newness of the Holy Spirit. Both of these produce fruit. Let's not miss that. Both of these lives produce fruit. One is bad fruit. Like it's a bad. We know that. We've experienced it. We know that sin and death and the fruit that it produces is yucky. That's why we're all in here on a Sunday morning instead of who knows what else we might have been doing. But the other fruit is good. It's wonderful. It's godly. It's a flourishing, life-giving, God-honoring, enjoyable fruit that we get to be a part of, that we get to produce. That's what the fruit of belonging to another should look like. If you were to examine that fruit in your life, what does it look like? How plentiful is it? Like, I have a vision, and I look at my own life, and I just see this picture of, like, is my godly newness of life in the Holy Spirit life producing a fruit that looks like an amazing, gorgeous, farmer's market fruit stand? Or does it kind of look a little wrinkly, a couple worms here and there, half the baskets are empty? What does it look like in your life? And it's okay, it's, it's okay if you're going, man, there's no fruit in these baskets, or it's pretty limited, and it's old, and it's worm-eaten, and man, that's terrible. If you're willing to say, I, I don't want that, I want to cling to Jesus and see it be beautiful, bright, vibrant, full, overflowing. I mean, I want my fruit stand to be apples and oranges and bananas just falling all over the road and people have to like stumble over it because it's overflowing. I want that for you. I want that for this church. It's, it's one thing to say, just to say, and we do say this and we rightly say it, I don't work for my salvation because I'm not under the law. 
We say that in this community all the time, don't we? We talk to our neighbors. We talk to the people in our community. We, say, we tell ourselves, I, I don't work for my salvation. I'm not under the law. It's an entirely different thing for someone to look into our life, to examine the fruit and say, wow, she's living like nothing I've ever seen before. He's living in a way I've never seen that. She must love Jesus so much. He must love, look at what's being produced by God working in him and in her. Man, that person loves Jesus. How do they know? They know them by your fruits, right? Are people saying this about us? I mean, really. Many of us are really happy to be out of the relationship with the law, and rightly so. We're happy to like, I'm so done being done with that. That was a dysfunctional relationship. Except we're treating our relationship with Jesus like a rebound relationship. Is Jesus your rebound guy? And then once you get through all that, you'll look beyond? Our attention is so focused on what we got out of that we just miss what God is giving to us right in front of us. He has all this for us. And we're too busy looking back at what the law is still doing. Because the law is alive. The law is active. The law is working in the lives of others all around us. We're like, oh, what's my my uh, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend doing over there? Oh, look at that. Look at this. When you have Jesus with you right now, giving you something so much better. We're just wanting to look back. Jesus said, look, be the guy with his hand on the plow looking forward, not the guy looking back. You have Jesus if you've died with Christ and it's so much better. You don't even need to give one thought to your old life in death and sin. Because when you get to eternity with Christ in glory, it will pale so much in comparison to everything you get in Jesus. So stop looking back and start looking at Jesus every day. Look to him. Love him. Talk with him in prayer. Read his word to you. Get around the people in whom he dwells in as his church, as his bride. Isn't it interesting? That's the illustration. We're the bride of Christ. Love him. Cherish him. Look to him. It gets even worse for us sometimes because sometimes we're not just kind of looking back. Sometimes we're tempted to go back. We're tempted to return to the law, to return to death, to return to sin. We're comfortable with that fruit and it's disgusting, but we're okay with it. We're we're going back. One, It's gross, and it's not worth it. But more significantly, you can't go back. You belong to another. And if you start dabbling with the old, you're having an affair. You're an adulteress. You're cheating on the one in whom died for you and lives for you, who bought you. You're cheating with that stuff. You can't go back. And praise the Lord, we can't. Because it's not worth it. It's not good. But sometimes isn't it so tempting? 
And the saddest part is when we look at it from this perspective, we're like, I can't believe I do that. But you're going to go home today, tomorrow, sometime this week, and you're going to be tempted, and you're going to go, how did I get back here? This should be obvious. Praise the Lord, we have one who forgives, who died for the sins, who died for the temptations. But let us grow in the fact that we don't need to keep going that way. It will happen, and he'll forgive you. But if you love him and if you cherish him, you should really make the best effort you can not to keep going back, but to look to Christ. Death changes everything. If you're in Christ, Christ has changed everything for you. Every single thing. You are freed so that you can bear good fruit in the newness of the Holy Spirit. How are you doing with that? Are you bearing good fruit? I mean, are you really, truly living in the life that he bought for you, the newness of the Holy Spirit, bearing good fruit for God, to bring him glory, and to enjoy the one to whom you belong? Because death changes everything. And if you're in Christ, you live in Christ and death is forever in your past. Let's pray. Lord, I am, first of all, so sorry for every time I turn back to the law, to death, to sin. Lord, I think this congregation would agree and ask, please forgive us again. We are sinners. Lord, help us to hate that sin. Not make excuses for it, but, but to love you so much that that sin looks so, so unfavorable. Let us see it for what it really is because we see you for who you really are. Let us be so enamored with you, so in love with you that the temptations lose their power God, I just ask that you would help us to be a church that bears good, wonderful fruit that we would enjoy, that would honor you and bring you glory. That others would say, wow, I want some of that. God, help us to be enamored with you, to love you, to cherish you above everything else. Lord, let us not just be a people who who celebrate that we're freed, which we should. God, we, we thank you for that. Lord, let us go well beyond that. Well beyond that. And how we live for you in the newness of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.